Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend asked if I would read from my work as something they might find comforting and familiar amidst the uncertainty and anxiety we're experiencing from multiple sources in 2020. As of this opening, I've read Perishables, the first book of my five-book vampire and urban fantasy series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka falstaffbooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's bit.ly, slash perishables link. Now I'm reading from my short stories and other works, and occasionally I'll invite on a writer friend for special episodes called Public Domain Radio. Thanks for listening. Okay. Oh, let's have a sip of reed and wine to get us in that place. Mm. It's actually a very pleasant afternoon here. I can hear my husband outside talking to somebody in the front yard, somebody who's out walking in the neighborhood while he does yard work. And, you know, winding down the day, soon it will be winter solstice, which is both my cat's 15th birthday and the day that the days will start getting longer. Oh, I need that. But middle of winter is, you know, or, well, technically the end of autumn, but uh, the time when it is dark a lot is a great time to be reading some Dracula. So let's do that. I never saw in all my experience the professor work in such deadly earnest. I knew, as he knew, that it was a stand-up fight with death, and in a pause told him so. He answered me in a way that I did not understand, but with the sternest look that his face could wear. If that were all, I would stop here, where we are now, and let her fade away into peace. For I see no light in life over her horizon. He went on with his work with, if possible, renewed and more frenzied vigor. Presently we both began to be conscious that the heat was beginning to be of some effect, Lucy's heart beat a trifle more audibly to the stethoscope, and her lungs had a perceptible movement. Van Helsing's face almost beamed, and as we lifted her from the bath and rolled her in a hot sheet to dry her, he said to me, The first gain is ours. Check to the king. We took Lucy into another room, which had by now been prepared, and laid her in bed and forced a few drops of brandy down her throat. I noticed that Van Helsing tied a soft silk handkerchief round her throat. She was still unconscious and was quite as and was quite as bad as, if not worse than, we had ever seen her. Van Helsing called in one of the women and told her to stay with her and not to take her eyes off her till we returned, and then beckoned me out of the room. We must consult as to what is to be done, he said as we descended the stairs. In the hall, he opened the dining room door and we passed in, he closing, he closing the door carefully behind him. The shutters had been opened, but the blinds were already down, with that obedience to the etiquette of death which the British woman of the lower classes always rigidly observes. The room was, therefore, dimly dark. It was, however, light enough for our purposes. Van Helsing's sternness was somewhat relieved by a look of perplexity. He was evidently torturing his mind about something, so I waited for an instant, and he spoke. 
What are we to do now? Where are we to turn for help? We must have another transfusion of blood, and that soon, or that poor girl's life won't be worth an hour's purchase. You are exhausted already. I am exhausted, too. I fear to trust those women, even if they would have encouraged to submit. What are we to do for someone who will open his veins for her? What's the matter with me, anyhow? The voice came from the sofa across the room, and its tones brought relief and joy to my heart, for they were those of Quincy Morris. Van Helsing started angrily at the first sound, but his face softened, and a glad look came into his eyes as I cried out, Quincy Morris, and rushed towards him with outstretched hands. What brought you here? I cried as our hands met. I guess art is the cause. He handed me a telegram. Have not heard from Seward for three days and am terribly anxious. Cannot leave. Father still in same condition. Send me word how Lucy is. Do not delay. Holmwood. I think I came just in the nick of time. You know you have only to tell me what to do. Van Helsing strode forward and took his hand, looking him straight in the eyes as he said, A brave man's blood is the best thing on this earth when a woman is in trouble. You're a man and no mistake. Well... Well, the devil may work against us for all he's worth, but God sends us men when we want them. Once again, we went through that ghastly operation. I have not the heart to go through with the details. Lucy had got a terrible shock and it told on her more than before, for though plenty of blood went into her veins, her body did not respond to the treatment as well as on the other occasions. Her struggle back into life was something frightful to see and hear. However, the action of both heart and lungs improved, and Van Helsing made a subcutaneous injection of morphia as before, and with good effect. Her faint became a profound slumber. The professor watched whilst I went downstairs with Quincy Morris and sent one of the maids to pay off one of the cabmen who were waiting. Oh my god. Sorry to inject an aside, but wow, they left those dudes out there for a long time. I left Quincy lying down after having a glass of wine and told the cook to get ready a good breakfast. Then a thought struck me, and I went back to the room where Lucy now was. When I came softly in, I found Van Helsing with a sheet or two of notepaper in his hand. He had evidently read it, and was thinking it over as he sat with his hand to his brow. There was a look of grim satisfaction in his face, as of one who has had a doubt solved. He handed me the paper, saying only, It dropped from Lucy's breast when we carried her to the bath. When I had read it, I stood looking at the professor, and after a pause, asked him, in God's name, what does it all mean? Was she, or is she mad? Or what sort of horrible danger is it? I was so bewildered that I did not know what to say more. Then Helsing put out his hand and took the paper, saying, Do not trouble about it now. Forget it for the present. You shall know and understand it all in good time, but it will be later. And now what is it that you came to me to say? This brought me back to fact, and I was all myself again. I came to speak about the certificate of death. If we do not act properly and wisely, there may be an inquest, and that paper would have to be produced. I am in hopes that we need have no inquest, for if we had, it would surely kill poor Lucy, if nothing else did. I know, and you know, and the other doctor who attended her knows, that Mrs. Westenra had disease of the heart, and we can certify that she died of it. Let us fill up the certificate at once, and I shall take it myself to the registrar and go on to the undertaker. Good, oh, my friend John, well thought of. Truly, Miss Lucy, if she be sad in the foes that beset her, is at least happy in the friends that love her. One, two, three, all open their veins for her besides one old man. Ah, yes, I know, friend John, I am not blind. I love you all the more for it. Now go. 
In the hall, I met Quincy Morris with a telegram from Arthur telling him that Mrs. Westenra was dead, that Lucy also had been ill but now was going to be better, and that Van Helsing and I were with her. I told him where I was going, and he hurried me out, but as I was going, said, "'When you come back, Jack, may I have two words with you all to ourselves?' I nodded in reply and went out. I found no difficulty about the registration and arranged with the local undertaker to come up in the evening to measure for the coffin and to make arrangements." When I got back, Quincy was waiting for me. And I've lost my place. Oh, yes. Okay. When I got back, Quincy was waiting for me. I told him I would see him as soon as I knew about Lucy and went up to her room. She was still sleeping and the professor seemingly had not moved from his seat at her side. From his putting his finger to his lips, I gathered that he expected her to wake before long and was afraid of forestalling nature. So I went down to Quincy and took him into the breakfast room, where the blinds were not drawn down, and which was a little more cheerful, or rather less cheerless, than the other rooms. When we were alone, he said to me, Jack Seward, I don't want to shove myself in anywhere where I've no right to be, but this is no ordinary case. You know I loved that girl and wanted to marry her, but although that's all past and gone, I can't help feeling anxious about her all the same. What is it that's wrong with her? The Dutchman, and a fine old fellow he is, I can see that, said that time you two came into the room that you must have another transfusion of blood, and that both you and he were exhausted. Now I know well that you medical men speak in camera, and that a man must not expect to know what they consult about in private. But this is no common matter, and whatever it is, I have done my part. Is not that so? That's so, I said, and he went on. I take it that both you and Van Helsing had done already what I did today. Is not that so? That's so. And I guess Art was in it too. When I saw him four days ago down at his place, he looked queer. I have not seen anything pulled down so quick since I was on the pampas and had a mare that I was fond of go to grass all in a night. Pampas? Let's say pampas. <laughs> I have not seen anything pulled down so quick since I was in the pampas and had a mare that I was fond of go to grass all in a night. One of those big bass that they call vampires had got at her in the night, and what with his gorge and the vein left open, there wasn't enough blood in her to let her stand up, and I had to put a bullet through her as she lay. Jack, if you may tell me without betraying confidence, Arthur was the first, is not that so? As he spoke, the poor fellow looked terribly anxious. He was in a torture of suspense regarding the woman he loved, and his utter ignorance of the terrible mystery which seemed to surround her intensified his pain. His very heart was bleeding, and it took all the manhood of him, and there was a royal lot of it, too, to keep him from breaking down. I paused before answering, for I felt that I must not betray anything which the professor wished kept secret. But already he knew so much, and guessed so much, that there could be no reason for not answering. So I answered in the same phrase, That's so. And how long has this been going on? About ten days. Ten days! Then I guess, Jack Seward, that poor pretty creature that we all love has had put into her veins within that time the blood of four strong men. Man alive, her whole body wouldn't hold it. Then coming close to me, he spoke in a fierce half-whisper. What took it out? I shook my head. That, I said, is the crux. Van Helsing is simply frantic about it, and I am at my wit's end. I can't even hazard a guess. There has been a series of little circumstances circumstances which have thrown out all our calculations as to Lucy being properly watched. But these shall not occur again. 
Here we stay until all be well or ill. Quincy held out his hand. Count me in, he said. You and the Dutchman will tell me what to do, and I'll do it. When she woke late in the afternoon, Lucy's first movement was to feel in her breast, and to my surprise, produced the paper which Van Helsing had given me to read. The careful professor had replaced it where it had come from, lest on waking she should be alarmed. Her eye then lit on Van Helsing and on me too, and gladdened. Then she looked around the room, and seeing where she was, shuddered. She gave a loud cry and put her poor thin hands before her pale face. We both understood what that meant, that she had realized to the full her mother's death. So we tried what we could to comfort her. Doubtless sympathy eased her somewhat, but she was very low in thought and spirit and wept silently and weakly for a long time. We told her that either or both of us would now remain with her all the time, and that seemed to comfort her. Towards dusk she fell into a doze. Here a very odd thing occurred. Whilst still asleep, she took the paper from her breast and tore it in two. Van Helsing stepped over and took the pieces from her. All the same, however, she went on with the action of tearing as though the material were still in her hands. Finally, she lifted her hands and opened them as though scattering the fragments. Van Helsing seemed surprised, and his brows gathered as if in thought, but he said nothing. Oh, that's a great place to stop. Because I want to take a second and talk about a couple of things in that. So for my Patreon, I'm reading The uh, Layer of the White Worm by Bram Stoker, which it turns out is super classist and racist. And uh, this is super classist and misogynistic in places. And it's difficult for me because I, I kind of think of Dracula as being a feminist work. You know, Lucy is not treated as a bad person in any of this and in many ways um you know she's not victim blamed for what's happening to her and in many ways she's depicted as a very brave character and then you know we get to mina and mina is like fierce as hell mina is unbelievably brave she is every bit a part of the scooby gang throughout this novel the second that they realize that they will benefit from letting her in on what they're doing, they do, and she's got full access to the conversation, and she is an integral part of their ability to win in the end. I mean, like, spoiler alert, but, you know, the novel's 130 years old. So she's a super important character, and I've always in my head had this as a very uh, feminist work in that sense. But, wow, there's a lot of just, like, it's not necessarily being bad to women so much as it is being extra careful to value manhood, which is itself misogynistic. It's, it's weird. I haven't stopped and thought about this before at this reading. And, um, and I still love this novel and this novel is very much a product of its time. And I'm not saying that in the sense that it excuses anything in this that is sexist or racist or classist. Uh, because I also think that there's some really crappy, like, um, I don't know, anglophilic self-love, especially in that beginning where Jonathan is on the train. So I'm not saying that that makes it okay. It's not an excuse, but it does explain it. And at the same time, I feel like there's so much in this book that we can pull out that is of value, that is good. Honestly, I feel like everything from Scooby-Doo to Buffy the Vampire Slayer to you name it wouldn't have existed without this book arguably and it's weird and it's something that has to be talked about and acknowledged 
when we look to those inspirations for things that we love, or just maybe not even inspirations, but foundations for things that we love, and we see problems there, like we see cracks in that foundation. It's, I don't know, it's interesting. But at any rate, I'm really glad we're reading this. And thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. This podcast is released under Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. The theme music is Bucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons Attribution License at ccmixter.org.